Good morning, everybody. If you'll open your scriptures this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read the first part of this as we go forward to see what God might be saying to us corporately and as individuals today. 1 Samuel 16, we'll start at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice and be consecrated. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on his heart, or on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This morning, we want to focus on this first part of the chapter, which to me is one of the largest turning points in all of Scripture. And, and Pastor Nick had alluded to that today. It's, it's always hard to say, well, this is like the crux of the whole Bible. But this is certainly one of three, maybe two high points of the entire Scripture as the flow of redemption really turns on what is happening here. And... I don't have a nice, shiny outline for you today. I want to move through this passage really with two thoughts in mind. And the first is, again, that the whole of the Old Testament is preparing the way for Christ to come in the New Testament. And I like to refer to this as the flow of redemptive history. I didn't coin that, but that's really what it is. And in this passage, David is really a type of Christ to come. And you're going to see that going forward. It's not just in this passage, but I'm sure as we look at Scripture to come. 
But part of this is I want to back up a little bit today because I have a real passion that God's people really embrace the Scripture for themselves and understand how important Scripture is in our lives. We spend a lot of time raising our children with our parental advice. We send them to schools. We have other family members involved. We have all these structures around young people to raise them up in the fear of the Lord. But the number one priority in my mind is to get kids and young people to own the scriptures for themselves. That way, as they face things in life going forward, kids going off to college, going off to a different school, maybe there's family difficulties, that if they really own the fact that scripture is God's word, they can work it out for themselves in the long run. Some of you come from bad theological environments, right? Maybe you were raised in one. But scripture can carry you through that. Instead of outright rejecting who God is, understanding that I'm responsible to respond to God's word that's before me, regardless of what's happened to me. Whether you've been abused, hurt, left behind, spiritually abused, we're still responsible to respond to God's word and who he is and what he wants from us. And so that's the truth that we ultimately want to, to see so today I want to take a brief deviation, and I want to give us, stir your thinking on the reliability of Scripture, because as soon as you step out these doors in your different spheres of life, that fact is always attacked as a believer. The Bible's a book of fairy tales. The Bible's not true. There's no evidence that the Bible is true. So let's stop and back up and take a look at that. Also, kids, if you didn't notice, I included a little... Um, word search for you today on a lot of the words that you're going to hear. But on the other side of that, we're going to go ahead and look at this here, this next slide. And I will tell you, I am not a mathematician. But I found this very interesting as a way to think about the complexity of God's word. I mean, it's both simple on his face, but it's also very complex. And we have to work at understanding. And I had seen this recently, and I thought, well, it's kind of a rough idea of how the Bible can be seen in different ways. So let's go with the non-mathematician. That's the last thing I am, okay? So if we look at the grids on the left side, if we look at it mathematically, we can see that two boxes times two boxes is four boxes. And then if you go three by three, it's nine boxes, and four by four and five by five. Does that make sense? Right there. Pretty simple. But if we use, if we look at the same grid from this standpoint, we start with one box in the left-hand corner and add three around it, one, two, three, we get four. If we add one plus one, two, three, and then one, two, three, four, five, we get nine. So basically, as you move forward through this grid, Mathematically, you can divide it up in two different ways, and you get the same outcome. And sometimes scripture is a little bit like that. When you're looking at scripture, we are dividing it in a way, calculating it by the use of other scripture. No scripture stands alone. If you're ever told one passage proves to you something you're supposed to do in life, you might rethink that. You might be careful of that. And so I think that's kind of an interesting example. The next thing I want to show you, I couldn't put on a handout, 
And I came across this, maybe you've seen this. This is really, really, really fascinating. This was done by a Christian man. I want to give him his proper credit. Chris Harrison in 2007. And it kind of recently came back on the scene. What they did was they sat down and they made a list of all the Bible verses that seem to be alluded to or connect directly to other passages or other scriptures. Almost 65,000 verses in the Bible are connected somehow to somewhere else in the Bible. And so what they did was they created, he created this, this timeline down on the bottom. These are the books of the Bible, and maybe you can see it. It's light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, and those are the books laid out in their order in the Bible, not chronologically by history. The lines that go down are the numbers of passages that they identified that are part of it. And interestingly, the one in the middle is Psalms 118, the number of passages that seem to relate. So as you look at these arcs, they made an arc from the passages that they felt were connected all through the Bible. And they made them different colors, so they're a little easier to see. What I find most remarkable is at the front end, connected all the way in the back end, and vice versa. There's not a, there's not a direction given. It's just they're connected somehow in the Word. And that's pretty remarkable because we read passages like God says, I know the beginning from the end. God already knew in the beginning what he was going to do in the end. He knew what the outcome is going to be. He already knows what the outcome is going to be. And Scripture helps us to see that. So there's all these correlations in here. And you can see there is a certain pattern from the Psalms or David's era, both to the beginning, from the beginning it's alluded to, and then it's alluding to the end. It's alluding to the time of Christ. So that's pretty remarkable, and I think that's probably the biggest comeback I've ever seen to somebody that says the Bible is just an irrational pile of a bunch of scriptures that are illogical. That's pretty astounding, 65,000 verses that can be touched with each other. And so as we look at passages and things like this story, we're looking at something profound. We're not looking at something like a narrative that we can learn a moral lesson from. We always want to go beyond that. When you hear somebody teaching or preaching, um, all the things you listen to, if, if they just always arrive at a moral end, that's not good enough, ultimately. Behaving morally is a good thing, but there's something deeper at play here. And the deeper deepness is that God is moving us through history for his purposes. And when God is beginning to work with King David, he's done what? He's shifted from what man wanted in a king and from what God wanted in a king. And subsequent to all of this will be one of the heirs of David being Christ himself. So it's a pretty phenomenal turn of events that's going on in these chapters that we see. You know, I think... In life, too, there's a case to be made that there is this, in a sense, a mathematical, statistical evaluation of human experience, even, that things don't change a lot. You know, what is the, what is the saying? The more things change, the more they what? Stay the same. 
So things might change culturally, but what? The same human heart condition still exists. It might look a little different. Or more so, history changes, but it seems to repeat that which already happened before. Because the breadth of the human heart is only so wide without God. Its abilities is only so big. Our mental capacity is only so great. So we repeat mostly the same stupid that we used to do in history. But there's, a, there's, a, there's something to be said for how God works. And that's my higher point. Within humanity, he has created things that are dependable. We can figure a lot of them out. And we know how people are going to behave. And we know kind of what can happen. And I'll go a little bit to the side here even further and give you a couple examples that aren't having to do anything with the church. But you probably didn't know that when public officials are growing a city, when they recognize, oh, we need to, you know, this whole new subdivision of a thousand homes is going on the outside of our city. We need to figure out how do we service that with police, fire, water, sewer, all that. We know there are actually sociological models that help figure that out. I can go and look and I can tell you at X point in X part of our community, we need to build another fire or police station because there's going to be about X crime or X fires or X car accidents. You go, how can that even be? How can that be? Aren't things more random than that? Well, for whatever reason, in the way God has created us, they're pretty dependable. They're pretty reliable statistics on what's going to happen when people do and live. And so we can, you know, we can have people talk about how different our day is today, so, you know, socially, culturally, intellectually, knowledge-wise. But for the most part, some of those things we get more information, but it doesn't really change our hearts. And we just keep doing the same things over. And it's reliably so. A lot of times, we're, when we were all young, we're gung-ho, right? You go to school, you get a job, you do whatever you're doing. Sometimes you feel like, I can change the world, and what happens? You might be able to change the world a little bit, but you run up against the reality of the world because that factor is there. So what we have to have is the never-changing, reliable Word of God in His Scripture that we can always measure what we're doing up against. Not what I say at the end of it, not what Nick says at the end of it, but what God is revealing in his scripture. And we can even see scripturally, or we can even see historically, good things that have happened in the church. So we can find this congruency in scripture, and even in this little passage today, I want to make a couple references in there to show congruency within the scripture, how it harkens to the future, and what God is doing and what we can take away from it ourselves. Does that make sense? Hope that makes sense. Briefly, last week, Pastor Nick ended up with in chapter 15, where Samuel was told that God was taking away Saul's kingship. And this was very grievous to Samuel, which kind of surprised me a little bit, I guess, because Samuel knew in the very beginning that this wasn't a good start. Remember, he tried to talk him out of it. And now Samuel's grieved, for who knows, Scripture's silent on that issue. And interesting, what's he do? He goes home. 
It's kind of interesting through a lot of these things, Samuel, he, God calls him to do this, he goes home. God calls him to do that, and he goes home. And uh, that's, that's what he does. And so that's what leads us to opening this today. The idea that Samuel's grieving over what God is going to do. So God gives Samuel the directive, and he says, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I rejected him from being king over evil, Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. You would think, and it's easy to criticize, you would think that Samuel wouldn't have found it so hard to accept what God was doing. I mean, you and I don't hear directly from God, right? So you would think it would impress upon you that he's doing something. But for whatever reason, maybe Saul had a relationship with Samuel after all these years. We don't, we don't know. Maybe the unknown future that was implied by Saul being removed um, was concerning to him. And he was worried about what as far as um, going to see about Jesse's sons. He says in verse 2, How can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. And the Lord does what? He gives him, he gives him cover. He says, Well, go do this. Go sacrifice. And I'm going to take care of it. So not only is Samuel grieved, but he's also worried about what Saul might do. He might kill me. Apparently he knows Saul pretty well, is my suspicion here. And he knows what Saul is capable of. Who does this response sound like to you in other biblical historical figures? As we say, things, the more they change, the more they stay the same. Maybe Jonah. Jonah got the directive, went the other way. Preach against Nineveh. Not doing that. They might maybe kill me. I don't know. Sounds like Moses, right? God says, go to Egypt. And he says, who am I? Who am I to talk to Pharaoh? I can't do this task. Even Samson was directed by God in a certain fashion, and he turned and followed his heart, his evil heart. This is the kind of thing that we can do sometimes when God gives us direction. Our first response is often, oh, I can't do that. I, I don't want to do that. That's too hard. Something might happen to me. And like Jesus, he's worried about a king that might kill him. Wasn't there a king in Jesus' time that wanted to kill Jesus? It was indirect, but it was the same kind of dynamic. They were concerned about this. Something that we can take away from this part in which he says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I show you, I'll show you what you can do. We can trust God to equip us for that that he's called us to. You could make a whole sermon right on this point right here about fear fearfulness, preventing us from walking in the things of the Lord we know we should. Um, we're fearful because we don't believe we have the abilities, we don't have the time, we don't have the gifting, or you're fearful because of maybe past failures you've had. And I, I find over time this is kind of a secret thing in some people's hearts, in Christians' hearts, that's hard to get out. Say, oh, we, we know we can come to Christ, he can forgive me for my sin, but my struggle with sin disqualifies me from doing ministry and reaching out to people. 
And I think that's happened in several people's lives I've known over time as Christians. There's always this, I don't understand why they can't take the next step forward in their life of maturity and especially ministry. Because God's obviously been gracious, they're faithful, they're doing things the way they should. And if you dig down, sometimes it's, well, because of the sin that's been in my life, I can't do these things. And that's fearfulness. And that's a reason that people use to turn their back on the call of God may have on them. And I encourage you, if that's true for you, don't believe that lie. Now, if you're struggling with some deep sin, we do have to deal with that, right? But because it's in the rearview mirror, does not necessarily disqualify you from what God is doing. And we don't have to worry about that and be full of fear and trepidation. Because if God calls us to do it, then we're going to do it. Because we feel strongly we're called to do it, even if people are naysayers. I've Obviously, I've had a few naysayers in my life. People who are Christians who tell me, you really shouldn't walk that direction. I, don't, I just don't see it for you. I walk that direction anyway, not out of some kind of rebellion or I'm going to show you, but because my understanding of what God was calling me to was stronger than pressure people could exert upon me because that's where I had come in my walk. And I know if it weren't for trusting in the validity of Scripture and seeking it deeper when I was confused, I wouldn't be here today. And if you know me well enough, probably every time I'm done here, after a Sunday morning standing up before I feel like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I up here? You know, I'm inadequate for the job, but God calls us to do it, and we're obedient to do it, and we leave the results with him. And it's really that simple. And I encourage you not to let your fear hold you back. Not for some crazy thing where someone walks up to you and says, hey, I see you doing this crazy thing that doesn't fit with your personality, your calling, your desires. That's not what I'm talking about. We all know, we all know that call. In verse 4, very interesting reaction from the elders. They were fearful. Why do you suppose they were fearful? So they, quite the comeuppance for them, right? Because they were all cheering on this Saul thing in the beginning, right? We want a king. They drove that, they drove that bandwagon pretty good. And so they knew who Samuel was. Samuel had been around a long time by now. Samuel had a lot of authority, and they knew he was God's prophet to them. And so... They were likely fearful of what God was going to do to them through Samuel. And they knew that there was a problem here. And Samuel, instead of saying, see, I told you so, right? I told you so, because he was just as grieved probably as they were. He said, um, yes, I come peacefully and I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Go consecrate yourselves because we're going to have a sacrifice. So he's walking in obedience to the fearfulness of what the elders were expressing again. So as we move forward, what happens? We see the story most of us know. Jesse brings his sons, all but David, and one by one, they march through the sons. And even Samuel in the beginning is, is doing what? He's like, well, he looks, he looks like a good candidate, going on the outward opinion of what he thought. Whatever their cultural boundaries were, however they thought about leadership, certainly they were thinking, he was thinking in that term alone because 
I mean, at this time, you have to remember the Holy Spirit was not residing on people the way God does for us today. After the seven sons passed, and God says, none of these, finally Samuel begins to realize, hmm, there's something going on here. God's looking for something else. Jesse says, well, my youngest son, go get him, bring him forward. And what's interesting, I think it's interesting in the passage that we say, well, God doesn't look on the outward heart. But what does he say about David when he brings him? He says that he was ready in beautiful eyes and was handsome. Okay, God. So, it's okay if you're beautiful and ruddy and have handsome eyes like Chad Kinnear. God can still use you. Okay? He wasn't saying he couldn't use you. He can, but he's looking on the heart. And Nick alluded to that today, and I would love to, you know, take a whole series sermons. What does that mean? God is looking on our hearts because even then it's wrapped up with, well, I know what my heart's like. My heart needed redeemed. But he's looking at my heart, but yet he's actually looking at his heart through you. God gives me the heart that I need, and that's the heart that he sees. We would mistake it to say that God is looking at me in the fullness of who I am, and he loves me, and he loves my heart, and Everything's okay with how he created me. No, it's not. I'm broken. And he provides Christ within me that repairs and restores. And then that's how he sees me. He sees himself through me, and he sees my heart. But he also knows the weakness of my heart, the inherent lostness of my heart, which will continue until he comes back and restores all things. So it's a fairly complex theological idea. But we can take from it that we don't look on the outward man. And I would deign to say that that's why, that's why it's not as important in the end what we're doing. It's not as important that you're making some really crazy display of worship on Sunday, that you're not on Facebook, making prophetic pronouncements or all these things that you want to do. God's looking at your heart. And I can even fool you, I suppose, but God's looking at my heart. And that is how my behavior is measured, not by the people around me. And I'm also looking at people and praying for people that God will change their hearts. Because that's what he's looking at. Never assume your first thoughts about something are always right. Give room to consider other things. If you don't have to make a fast decision about something, don't do it. If, you don't, if you're not looking at it the right way. Another interesting part about this story is what happens in verse 13 again. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit rushed upon David from that day, and Samuel rose up, and he went home. So two extremely interesting parts of this is the anointing that goes on, 
How many times was David anointed before he was king? I didn't know this. Anybody want to guess? Three. He was anointed three times. How about that? I didn't know that. So this is the first time he's anointed. And what happens to David after the spirit is upon him? God takes his spirit off of Saul and he puts it on David. And David goes home. Because David had a time of testing that he needed to go forward into, right? And look at Christ. Jesus was baptized. He was also anointed at Bethany later, but he was baptized as the opening to his public ministry by John the Baptist. And where did Jesus head directly after that? I think in Matthew 4, the desert for a time of testing. Many times God calls, but then there's a time of testing a time of proving, a time of change, a time of maturity before the fruit of that call comes forward. Not always. Some people make that a theological truth 100%. That's not always true, but often it's true. And even if you're called to something, you will be tested through that something. And you will mature in what God has called you to. And we have to be open to that. So just like Jesus, David was a good picture of that. And he was called. Matthew Henry, the commentator from the 1600s, small are the beginnings of that great man about David. Small beginnings are of that great man. And that's really true. And that's often true in life itself. As we said here in verse 13, we see that the the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. <clears throat> I would like to know the effect that it had on him in his life when he went home. My guess is that David began to see things differently. He had a sense of God was doing something in his life. Obviously, he's anointed in front of the elders and his brothers, so that was, that's a pretty big deal. Maybe there was resentment from his brothers, kind of like who? Joseph. Joseph, sort of like David. Joseph's like Christ, David's like Christ, all these things pointing to Christ. So verse 14 is a bit of a shift in the back end of the text here. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Doesn't say why, doesn't say what the spirit was. And Saul's servants said to him, behold now a harmful spirit of God is tormenting you. Imagine going to your boss and saying that. Like, can, can we get somebody to help you out, man? You're killing us. You're killing us. Or you're going to kill us. I'm not sure which. So he said, sure, provide for me a man who can play well and bring it to me. So this is a fairly small population of people at this time. And so people kind of knew people. And that's what happened here. So dramatically, then David is brought into the court of the king. Amazing, huh? God's plan is coming together. He's using a previous king, a, a king who is still king, but the spirit is gone from him, and he's tormented. And lo and behold, David comes in to the court of the king to play for Saul. And you think, did not Saul know who this was? We don't know. It's not obvious at this point. And so David comes in, and the Spirit is on him. 
So back in verse 13, we see that the Spirit rushes on David in that time. At that time, the Holy Spirit was only given to certain people in the Old Testament economy, if we can say it that way. This word anoint that David had undergone an anointing means to designate as set apart. God's power is bestowed upon David, and he is set apart for the work of God. I think sometimes we think of this being set apart for the work of God as a Christian as some like special thing. It can be, I'm going to be a missionary, I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to do whatever. But no, that's true for all of us. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, when it rushes upon us at our time of conversion, we are being set apart to be called by God equally. None more called than others. We're all called the same. Ironically, David ends up serving the one who will try to kill him. And yet he, yet he persists, and we're going to see this story unfold over time. God's faithfulness as David walks forward into his calling, even in spite of his sin, right? We're going to get to a lot of that later, too, if you look in the passage. And, and then you see that the middle section of the Bible, Psalm 118 is the middle section of the Bible. Here we're at in the Psalms, the time of David, all the waxing and waning of his uh, worship of God and then his sin and all the things he's struggling with. These are all preparing the way. So here's some of the threads as I kind of bring us to a close here. Here's some of the threads that we can see even in just this little bit of a passage that, we haven't, that we've been talking about. This phrase, horn of salvation, um, is used in Luke 1, verse 69. He says, He, being God, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here we are in the first chapter of Luke, and he's writing, hearkening back to this time of David and the horn of salvation, a figurative idea that God's salvation is coming through a man, through the man Christ Jesus. If you look in Luke, two more chapters, verse 3, you can see the lineage of Christ is in there. And so you can back up and you can see all the way to David. You can see Christ came through the line of David. That was a seminal event in God's move of salvation through history. Another great sermon series we could do is... Uh, the concept found in Hebrews that Jesus fulfilled the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We know in the Old Testament there were prophets, there were priests, there were kings, right? There's a few times in there where somebody decides they're going to be the priest or they're going to be the prophet and great trouble comes because God had three offices for three separate purposes for the times of his working. But Jesus fulfilled all those. Jesus becomes all of those to us. We don't need a prophet telling us how to live. We don't need a priest making intercession for us between us and God and saying, you're forgiven. We don't need a king that runs our everyday life. We need Christ, fulfills all those in his word. We can find out who he is. Jesus calls us to righteousness, and he offers the sacrifice of himself, and then he becomes the king. He tells us 
you're lost. He's the prophet. He says, I'll be the sacrifice. He's the priest. And then he's the king of our lives, simply put. And finally, by Jesus coming back, coming as our sacrificial lamb, it harkens way back to the sacrifice of Abel. Right in the beginning, what God was requiring, a sacrifice of animals, of blood for redemption. All the way from Abel to David's time, building the temple, forward to Christ, now to us, and then to the end of the world. God's plan for you and I cannot be thwarted. It will not be thwarted, whatever that plan is, even when we don't understand it. If you lose your spouse today in a terrible accident, God's plan for your life will not be thwarted. Nothing that happens will thwart the plan of God. Will it be easy? No. But if we're faithful, follow his voice and do not fear what he's doing in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is an all-consuming well of knowledge and wisdom, advice and joy, words of the Spirit that can change us and utterly carry us through our entire life without fail, without pause, without harm, without fear, without confusion. Father, we pray that we would always be people of the word and we would live by that regardless of the shifting waves of culture, the calls to temptation, the calls to selfishness, and looking for king or king in another way. Father, strengthen us today, we pray. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.